Second topic, don't worry, I'll get up there when I need my notes. <laughs> but uh, this is something now, back in over 20 years ago, I was invited for, I think, the first time to be a speaker at a workout, breakout session, what was then NANC and is now ACBC. And I had been counseling many cases of parents of teenagers, and the teenagers were rebelling. And I had, again, it was like there was no book about that that I could find that was really biblically based. And so I was developing, and so I volunteered to do a seminar, you know, or breakout session at the conference on this topic because I was dealing with all these other families that had these problems. And really the outline you have is very similar to what I came up with. And so the conference, um, at that time, I had our children, I still have three sons, but at that time they were 19, 17, and 13, 14. And they had all professed faith. They'd all been baptized. They were all very committed to the church, so it seemed. Um, our oldest son had gone off to college at Washington Illy University. We'd set him up in a good church there, got to know the pastor. We would talk to him every week, and things seemed to be okay. And then on April the 1st, 2001, uh, in a phone call with him, he says, you need to know some things. And basically, he'd quit going to church. He was in a very serious romantic relationship with a Buddhist girl and more or less admitted it had become sexual. He didn't really believe what we believed, and he wasn't going to... We had kind of made, these are the rules for us supporting you in college. He's not considering himself under those rules. Now, at the time... I was very obviously very upset, but even angry. And it took many years later for me to realize it took a lot of courage for him to tell me those things. At the time, I just saw it as an act of rebellion and struggled with that. But in, in hindsight, I mean, we have a good relationship now. He just texted me from a soccer stadium in England. He's not playing. He's watching. Um, but at the time, it was just devastating. And... For us, you know, we'd followed all the stuff. I, I knew enough biblically that there wasn't a guarantee if you homeschool your kids and you get them involved in church and all the things we were trying to do that it's all going to work out. I kind of knew the right answer, but I think deep down, I'd never faced a problem with my kids I couldn't find a way to solve. And so that came as a great shock. And I remember, some of you know my wife Caroline, and she is the sweetest, kindest person I've ever known in my entire life. She's a very cheerful person. I've known her since we were about 15. And if I would have taken all the tears she would have ever cried since I had known her, that I had seen anyway, it would not even fit a thimble. But over the next week, I would have needed a bucket. And I remember when this happened, she just went out in the backyard and started pulling weeds for days and crying and pulling weeds. And we were... Um, beside ourselves of what to do. And so I'll tell more about what happened after that with them. But then several months later, our, let's say, 14-year-old living at home, I think under the influence of his older brother, had become convinced that we were a bunch of radical fundamentalists who were keeping him from enjoying a normal high school experience. And he and this guy had been the most affectionate, loving son. 
he would actually go to my leadership meetings at church and sit with the seminary interns and, you know, training for future leaders. And, and he just hard turned and rebelled, just tried to pursue every sin he possibly could. And that was harder in some ways because he's in the house. And I'll talk about some of the complications of that. And the guy that had, I mean, like he's 13, 14 years old and he wants to hold my hand in church and all of a sudden he hates us. And we hadn't changed. Um, but at least there was the middle son, Mark. Mark, uh, by then, he went to college very young. He might have, anyway, he, he went to college, got a degree, got a great job. Um, when college, he played piano for his university group, went to the Baptist church we found for him, came home, was part of our church. Then he was 26. Um, we learned that there's a girl. And Mark leaves the church, says he no longer believes, and marries the unbelieving girl. And so it's like three shoes <laughs> all dropping. And it's been very, very hard. It still is hard. I mean, I'll talk later that the Lord has helped us to have some good relationships with them. Uh, one of the main things it's taught us is how to love people who break your heart, which teaches us about how God loves us. So um, out of that... You know, again, the original book, When Good Kids Make Bad Choices, is that Elise Fitzpatrick, um, who's a dear friend, she's changed her views since we wrote books together. That's another topic. But um, she heard about my talk and said, we need to write a book. And so that's the first thing I got to write and just pulling together the things I learned. Really, a lot of what's in your outline, it's, you know, evolved some over the years. But what can we learn from not just my experience, but others who struggle in parenting. And so some of what's in your outline we can kind of skip over because we already covered it and parenting is more than a formula. Why do kids turn out the way they do? Uh, you know, we have influence, our children make choices, we need the grace of God. I will address a couple of questions very specifically that do come up, though. And one is that must, well, if a pastor or a missionary has a child who is an unbeliever, does that disqualify them? And in First Timothy, it says children should be under control, not accused of rebellion. In Titus, in some of the translations, it says that in verse 6 of Titus 1, it says, having children who believe. And that's a translation of pistos technon. I may not be getting the forms of the Greek words right. But and I talked to Terry about this yesterday, and, and thankfully before I started having problems, back when I thought all my children were believers, our elders worked that through. And if you do a concordance search of pistos in the pastoral epistles, including Titus, it generally means faithful or trustworthy. It is a trustworthy statement. It is trust these things to faithful men, which makes a lot more sense because it would really be a parallel statement. If you have children in the home, they need to be faithful, under control, not accused of rebellion. And my understanding would be, even from the Bible, that if you have children at home, through discipline you can restrain their sin, and you're responsible to do that, but you can't regenerate them. (laughs) Um, That I'm not responsible for producing faith in children, that's what only the Holy Spirit can do. So I think both from the standpoint of the meaning of the Greek word, I think other translations probably get it better in terms of faithful, but I've had cases where a missionary calls me and he's in his 30s, no, he's in his, sorry, he's in his 40s or 50s, 
And he's got a daughter who's a young adult out of the home for years who's come out as a lesbian and said, do I need to leave the field and get another job? And I'm really convinced from the Bible that we're responsible for our children in the home to, to train them, to you know, discipline, instruct, not provoke to anger, and we need to be faithful. And if they're rebelling, we need to do what we can to restrain their sin. But we're not held responsible for their regeneration. And then when they leave the home, then we don't have control over what they do anymore. And then we get to the last talk, we'll talk about how as uh, our kids are adults, um, that <clears throat> you know, if you don't want to enable a sinful lifestyle of an adult child, that would make you responsible. Actually, I'll give you a true story. One time when I was in the Philippines, um, I was invited to do a conference, and the year before, this pastor had said he was going to have so many people come to his church, and we're going to have the biggest conference ever in the Philippines. Well, I get there, they're like four people. And I'm staying in the pastor's home with him and his family, and he introduced me his son and his daughter-in-law and their baby. Well, at, before the last day of the conference, he, he came to me crying. It was very late at night. So i got to tell you something. That is my son. That is his child. But the woman my son is living with is his girlfriend, and his wife is actually in Hong Kong working as a maid. Now I understand why no one came. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, that to me would, he's enabling by letting the son live there and everything else. So it can be disqualifying. Um, but you know, we're not responsible for the choices our children make when they're outside of the home. And so, you know, prevention again, I'll cover quickly. I really want to spend most of the time in this talk of kind of how do you deal with the problem because that's what's unique about our book, but, you, know, you want to, again, discipline, instruct them, train them from the Word. Uh, I've got the list, again, not provoking them to anger. I will say that in a lot of the counseling I've done, a couple of issues I've noticed over the years have been in families that are very controlling of their children, where you treat a 9-year-old and a 19-year-old with the same level of expectation and control. I think that is one way parents tend to provoke their children to anger. Um, And I think we need to learn to relate to them as they're becoming adults. I also think that it's very important to have fun together and not just to spend your whole time trying to maintain control in your family. And I see the Lord has blessed that in many people. And then uh, I really love uh, Sam Crabtree's book called Practicing Affirmation. I don't know if any of you have read the book but it's on the IBCD website when he gave three talks based on the book. Sam Crabtree has been the executive pastor at Bethlehem where John Piper was for many years. And the basic premise of practicing affirmation is that it's biblical to affirm the good work of God and others. And he gives examples like in Proverbs 31, the husband rises up and blesses his wife. So he affirms and is thankful for her. Paul commends the churches. Even he finds something to commend in Corinth of all places. In the Revelation letters, Jesus commends what he can commend about the seven churches in Asia Minor. So it's biblical to recognize the good work of others. And even an unbelieving child can in common grace be honest, hardworking, successful in sports or music. And, and here's the issue in thinking of your teenager or young adult. If I was to see your 15-year-old and say, what do your parents think is wrong with you? 
I think they would have no trouble listing. My mother and my father see all these things wrong with me. I'm lazy, da 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 whatever it is. If I was to say, what do your parents think is wonderful about you? They might be stymied. And so that book has really helped me since it came out, even with my adult kids, with my wife, with counselees, to, I get, like you see people at the beach with metal detectors. I kind of want to be an affirmation detector. Uh, and I did find, like, my youngest son was still living at home after college for a while, had some health issues. And one night I was talking to him, oh, Daniel, I think I said, you, you, I really admire how persevering you are. You know, having been sick, trying to do different things. Well, next thing I know on Facebook is just, my father, Jim Neuheiser, says blank about me. And I realized probably he hadn't heard many things like that, and so he wanted to tell the world. So I think affirmation is really an important element on the positive side. But then the question that's the hard one to face is, what do you do when you see rebellion in your children? Uh, The scripture says, discipline your son while there is hope. And uh, this is what happens. Okay, you you read Ted Tripp's book. You tried to practice Paul Tripp's book with your teenager. You're you're trying to do the right stuff, but you just sense ingratitude, laziness, disrespect. They're drawn to the wrong kind of peers. They're drawn to the wrong kind of entertainment. They've become very secretive. one author writes, if you lose your child's heart, quickly put into action a plan to get the heart back, no matter what it takes to do it. No matter how much time, trouble, or money it takes, you must be willing to pay a price. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that statement. And, you know, even looking back now that my kids are grown, is we had some crucial times with our kids where that was really the most important thing going on in our life more than even my ministry or other things that were happening. It just required a lot of uh, inconvenience. And actually, when we started having trouble, I shared with my fellow elders everything that was going on. I actually told them things that I had learned about my youngest son, who is still in the home, that I had not told Caroline and have still not told Caroline, and she doesn't want to hear about it. But I did snooping, Uh, you know, you you can go online and you can do other things and find out what's going on. And I laid it out and I said, I, if you need to decide whether I'm disqualified. You need to evaluate the situation. And their response was very gracious when they said, we've watched you parent your children. We, don't, we think you've tried to be faithful. But we will also say that this is a crisis time and you need to do whatever it takes right now to help Caroline, especially with the youngest who is still in the home. So remember that trip you were going to take to the Middle East? You're not going. On the positive side, if you need us to preach for you, if you need time off, do whatever it takes. And I think that was very, very wise counsel they gave me, is that if you're in a time of crisis, especially with a teenager, uh, you may need to rearrange your life around doing what you can. It doesn't mean they rule your life and control you, but you may need to be ready to do drastic things with your own life and schedule because it's a very short time till they're going to be on their own. So um, when we had trouble, when again, again, the 19-year-old is the first one, when he was 19 at the time, the oldest. When this initially happened, um, I kind of initially took the, the perspective of like the Old Testament prophets who would write letters, you know, or proclaim to Israelites 
on God's behalf. Here is how God has been faithful, and here is how you broke the covenant. Now here are the bad things that are going to happen to you. And that was my mentality, is that we're paying for you to go to college. We've given you all this opportunity, and here you've broken our agreement, and, you know, this is no more money or whatever my threats were. Um, not all that was entirely wrong, but what does Jesus say in Matthew 7? If you're in a conflict, first get the log out of your own eye. And the way that I became really aware of the log was a very humbling experience where my son, I think the year before, had gone to Labrie, which is what Francis Schaeffer had said, if he went to the one in England. And he invited me to join him in England some months after the initial revelation of the new direction he'd gone. And I went, and I actually went like with apologetics books that I was going to talk him out of his wrong thinking and uh, you know convince him to come back into the fold. When I got to Labrie, uh, I realized Labrie is mostly college students who are angry at their parents and angry at their pastors. <laughs> And I was the only parent and pastor in the whole place. And the person who was, I think, probably younger than I, who was trying to help us, and we were an unusual, that's not what they specialize in. They just deal with the students usually. They don't deal with the parents, but they let me come. But the guy that talked to me admonished me and forced me, you talk about biblical counsel, well, forced me to get my eyes off of all the ways my fa- my son had sinned, and he was committing fornication and all these other things that were wrong, and to examine myself. And I had to spend a lot of time. I took long walks and thinking and praying. And, and so moving away from the self-justification, one thing I did was, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Come Back Barbara by Jack Miller. And this is something where the end of the story is, his daughter is converted, and actually now she works one of the publishers of my books. But she, when she was about 18, completely rebelled, like she's living with a drug dealer, and she's doing all these horrible things. But they alternate chapters in the narrative where, you know, when she comes and says, makes her declaration of independence and how the parents deal with it. And as I read the book, one thing that just impressed me is how the parents kept showing grace and kindness and help and that wasn't my attitude. I was judge. <laughs> and um, I even thought, what's wrong with these parents? And yet I, I can't argue. And now I know Barbara. It's kind of funny meeting her as a 50-something-year-old adult or when I first met her, married to a godly man and doing well. But you know, they went through many years of, of tragic turmoil with her. So I had to deal with my own sin. And if you have children who are rebelling, I think that's what you're going to have to do. And some people, places would be I didn't discipline or I didn't instruct. In my case, I think that I was good at discipline. I was good at doing family devotions. I was good at doing, you know, monthly time alone with each kid and all the stuff you're supposed to do. But I was not very good at just expressing love to my son. And um, then I think also as he was becoming an adult... I was still in control mode, and I realized he'd begun thinking for himself a long time before. It wasn't like suddenly this happened. And I don't think I made it really safe for him to disagree (laughs) or to tell me what he was really thinking. And that doesn't mean it would have made things different, but I was living under illusions. And just, you know, Paul Tripp talks about this too, is that don't think you can control the heart of a young adult or a teenager I mean, you can, to some degree, regulate their behavior. Um, 
and over-control will tempt a strong-willed child to rebel all the more. And I would also add, I think I had failed to make my faith as attractive as it should be, that it could seem like... Actually, one of the things with the guy that counseled us at Labrie is he asked my son to describe me in one word. And it stuck with me. He said the word was duty. Uh, it's probably still true. <laughs> I would have loved for even love <laughs> or humility or something. Hum- humility was happening. Um, but in my own case, it was a time to humble myself before God and get my eyes off of what I thought were his sins and to uh, cry out. And there were many emotions of, of anger and shame and heartbreak. It was hard being part of the homeschool community. And we were kind of the oldest we were ahead of everybody else by a few years of our community of homeschooling our kids. And so we were seen as the examples. And there was a lot of the formulaic stuff going on where if you just did. So you must have done. I remember we kind of, well, boy, that family, they must have done something wrong because their kid's in trouble. Um, and then seeking godly counsel and the abundance of counselors, there is victory in Proverbs. And again, a lot of the people I talked to, we're, like much counsel we get in the world is that they wanted to be friends. Oh, you've been great parents. I don't know what's wrong with him. And he'll come back. It'll all be fine. And I mean, they meant well, but faithful to the wounds of a friend. You know, and, and some people who really help or say, well, I think these are things you could have done better. We probably should have talked to you before. And here are things you need to do now. And it wasn't fun. But like the people at Labrie, I think... Getting torn apart the way I felt torn apart was what I needed at the time. Uh, Caroline started praying and fasting. She had a friend that she they would I guess skip their meals until dinner typically, but they would spend a day praying for people with uh, wayward children. Um, it's also coming to grips for the sin of your child for what it really is. You know, what's one of the most common things? If some child gets arrested or they get in big trouble, what does the mother often say? Well, he got in with the wrong crowd. You know, Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with the wise will be wise, and the companion of fools will suffer harm. The reason he got with the wrong crowd is because that's what he's attracted to. I actually knew a, a pastor who uh, was living in Alaska, and he had a young teenage son who got involved in smoking pot and being lazy, and so they, they moved. He quit his pastor and moved um, to another place. Well, before they'd started unpacking their boxes, their son had found exactly the same kind of people that he had left behind thousands of miles away. The, the problem wasn't the environment. And for some people, they'll say, oh, but I remember watching little Sally ask Jesus into her heart when she was five years old. And I don't want to discourage, I know people who would say, I came to faith almost younger than I can remember, and I know I'm a sinner saved by grace, and so I believe Jesus saves children. But I also think, by the way, there are also adults who profess faith who later fall away and weren't really converted, but I think we have to deal with the reality that sometimes children to please their parents or to fit in with the church, and that's kind of my analysis of the Josh Harris thing. He was in a community where to be successful was to become a pastor of a big church. And uh, he just went along with that till he couldn't and didn't. But I think sometimes it could be really hard for a parent to realize that your problem here probably means evangelism. And that even if they made that profession, I remember hearing a mom's, you know, where their husband's like, I mean, her, her son is like in all kinds of evil. Oh, but I'm sure he's saved because he, you know, well, Jesus said by this you'll know, oh, I'm sorry, John says by this you know the, 
We know that we come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And later in the same chapter, he talks about people who have gone out from us because they were never really of us. And so don't blame others. Don't blame genetics or whatever else. I mean, you have to come to grips. Sin is sin. You have to recognize you're not in control. Um, You can't control their heart. Another aspect is just be concerned for the rest of your family. Um, it can be, and I, I, I'm still counseling couples who are having these problems with their teenagers and young adults. There's a temptation, like in a couple I'm dealing with right now, where he is kind of the strict guy, can get a little angry, but he holds the rules, and she's the softy who doesn't enforce the rules, and it's real easy for them to blame each other. Well, this happened because you didn't follow the rules, so this happened because you get angry, and that's not really helpful. And it's also not helpful is that rebellious kids will try to divide and conquer anyway. And so it's very important that husband and wife be united. And part of it is to be humble and to be gracious. Instead of saying, I did it right, you did it wrong. I see what I did wrong. And, you know, I forgive you for what you did wrong. Please forgive me for what I did wrong. Now we need to work together on this. Uh, Caroline and I pray together every night. And we still pray for our kids every night. And this keeps us praying. And we had gotten to that habit several years before, but if we, we will probably never lose that. I'd never want to lose that habit. So, you know, and even care for your marriage. We had friends in our church who gave us a week of their timeshare in Hawaii, kind of in the middle of the worst of it, just to get away for a week while others watched our kids who were still in the our one son who was still in the home. Um, and then also watch out for your other children. And there are two different things can happen. One is influence. Rebels want company. And again, another case where the girl who's immoral and doing drugs, who's 17, she, you know, she'd like to get her 15-year-old sister in the same direction and, you know, that somehow validation. So you watch out for influence. The other aspect, like at the time with our middle son, we have trouble with the old one who's out of college. We have trouble with the young one who's in the home. You could neglect the one who's not causing any problems, and that's not good either. And then the response in terms of, well, what do I do? And I I use the analogy in the book of an offensive, like in Ukraine or something, you're trying to regain ground. I don't mean your, your child is the enemy and you're trying to conquer him. I mean, I talk about a discipline offensive and a love offensive, and, and, and what I mean is that you're fully, it's like, I guess, war where you're fully committed, but you're not fighting them, you're fighting for them, you're fighting to regain them. Um, and so discipline is necessary uh, to, if they're under your roof and under your authority, to constrain their sin as far as you're able. And part of that is you need to be willing to do some investigation. Um, Proverbs 25.2 is the glory of the Lord to con- of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to search out a matter. Uh, there's also Proverbs that talk about the lying lips hates those it deceives. And one of the things I learned actually in my early biblical counseling training is that in the Bible, you people lie to their enemies. And some people, you know, when the Israelites lie to these Canaanites they were conquering, people wonder whether they were allowed to do that. But uh, you know, someone is treating like an enemy if they're lying to you. And rebellious children in Christian homes are going... I mean, our, our youngest son tried to make us think he was still a Christian and he was following all the rules. And under the cover of that was doing everything bad you could possibly imagine. 
And the only way we found out was to, in, in those days, technology was different, but we put something on the computer that he was using to chat with people, and it captured everything he did, and that's how we, you know, history and everything else, and we had help technologically that was better than his ability to hide it. And that's how we really, and even searching the room, and uh, the analogy that, you know, we don't want the police barging into our house all the time, but if you're accused of certain crimes, they can get a search warrant and search. So I don't want everybody to go home. If you've got a child who's doing great, don't go tear through their room trying to find bad things necessarily. But in the case, you know, you're concerned about drugs, you're concerned about cutting, you're concerned about pornography. And so I heard somebody make the suggestion that if your kids are allowed to use social media, et cetera, uh, pass, that you get their passwords. Like if, if you want this privilege, then you have, as long as you're a minor, we have the right to jump in. It doesn't mean we're always going to do it, but you're a minor in our home and having a smartphone, by the way, if you, it's kind of like a, a smartphone can be a tool of rebellion for someone. <laughs> It could be the way you hook up with the people you're not supposed to be with and get the things you're not supposed to have and look at what you're not supposed to see. And so you need to be prepared to really figure out what's going on. And I will say it was devastating uh, when I, you know, we searched his room and looked at the history and everything else. And then to the extent you can, try to remove bad influences. It won't change his heart, but... Uh, some people will say, you know, I know people who say that there's a certain schooling situation that is, you know, he's surrounded by people who are feeding this, and so we need to put him in a situation or home where we have more control. In some cases it could be sending him somewhere, we'll get to that. Um, and then access, internet, movie, TV, phone, everything else. It's not the right of every adolescent to have a smartphone with unfettered access to everything a smartphone can do. And then positively, you establish expectations. Even if your child's not a believer, um, you can have standards and you can enforce them. You know, curfew. Those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Uh, entertainment standards. Um, that, uh, you know, I guess Ephesians 5, 3, make, well, Romans says, make 13, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And then Ephesians 3, 5, 3, it says, Immorality, impurity, greed must not even be named among you. Um, and I'll, I'll make a comment about that. It also would be dress. think especially for girls. And in my mind, you've got kind of three levels you're thinking about. One is ideal. One is unacceptable. And one is they have choices to make. The more responsible they are, the more choices they get to make. But, you know, ideal is you would like your daughter wearing long-sleeved, loose-fitting, long dresses. You want her listening to classical music, Bach. Beethoven's a little radical, but he's okay. You know, you want her watching no movie that was made after 1950. Can't even trust the Disney or Hallmark movies anymore. You know, you've got these ideals. Well, then you've got you're not going to watch porn. You're not going to watch... R-rated crud, you're not, you know, there, there are things here, even music that is hateful and destructive. And then there's a middle range where there are choices they're making, and that middle will grow as they become more trusted. But 
uh, I remember one time in our J. Grace Bible Church, um, a girl, by the way, this is like nearly 30 years ago. So what I'm saying now doesn't sound strange now, but if you imagine like a 15-year-old girl walking in with orange hair. And I've had other cases, another case where a parent, the child comes in, bizarre dress. And I, at the, I mean, I, in my younger years, I thought, what are those parents thinking? But now I'm realizing those poor parents, that they've given her the freedom. And actually, in the case of the orange hair, she didn't really intend it to be orange, but that's what <laughs> happened. But um, just those are silly things that sometimes you give freedom and things that aren't going to destroy them. Um, they're making choices, and they have to live with the consequence of those choices rather than controlling every single thing they do. Um, you know, but again, positive standards. I, my, I have an opinion that I can't, this would be legalism if I imposed it upon you, but I'm often asked, well, what about church involvement? And the conclusion I've reached, I'll talk a little more maybe when we get to adult kids, is that if you have a minor living in the home, I think it's appropriate to expect them to attend at least once a week and to be respectful about it. I'm not sure I'd make them go seven times a week like you do, although if you don't trust them, then you need to find some way of keeping them from trouble when you're apart from each other. I think that as they become adults, it's your house, and if you want to say to live here, you must go to church, you're free to say that. My opinion is a point comes when dragging an unbeliever unwillingly to church to hear what they've already heard many times before may not be effective. And so I don't think the Bible compels you to make them go. I don't think the Bible says you're not allowed to do it. It becomes a wisdom issue. Um, you know, obviously, manner of speaking to parents, uh, Proverbs 20.20, he who curses his father or mother, his lamp will go out. There's another verse later in the book of Proverbs that talks about the ravens eating out his eyes. Uh, you know, treatment of siblings, uh, substance abuse. I actually, in Escondido, in my counseling office, I would keep a handful of drug testing kits to kind of give parents, if they want to get started on that, you know, that if there's been a problem or there's suspicion, you know, here's a way you can build trust. You pee into the cup and we'll stick the thing in there, and if it shows there's no trace of pot or meth or whatever it is we're testing for, then you've proven you've you know, been good. And But that's a you know, condition of living here if, because that's a rule we have and things have happened in the past and we need to deal with it. Uh, work is a big thing. Proverbs 6, you know, go to the end of sluggard. Proverbs 24, this, you, know, you look at the field of the sluggard, it's overgrown with weeds. And so and that's a big problem sometimes um, that... You know, they're not, I've got cases now where the son is not going to school. He leaves the house and he goes and does other things and, or even a young adult and they're not working during the day. There's laziness and just, you've got to work. You've got to be diligent or there will be consequences. I will also make a brief statement about marijuana, um, that there have been so many studies that show marijuana lowers IQs and sucks, um, drive and ambition out of young people. It is very, very destructive. It can also lead to other addictions. I will mention a fairly new book. If, I don't know if it's in the bookstore, but Dr. Charles Hodges, who's an ACBC, he's a medical doctor, but he's an ACBC fellow, has created a new edition of a Christian counselor's medical guide. And various Christian counselors who are medical people, mostly doctors, some nurses, have each written chapters. And there's a chapter on marijuana in there. And 
whether it's, I mean, abortion is legal, that doesn't mean it's good. And marijuana is very destructive and is also very addictive. You know, anyway, other expectations, uh, contribution to family, chores. You know, Proverbs 10.5, he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Uh, we've already talked about dress code. And then there have to be consequences. Um, rules without consequences are totally ineffective. Uh, actually, I'll give you an example. Where I live in Charlotte, like a lot of big cities that have more permissive governments, they basically, during COVID, said, we're not really going to enforce all these different traffic rules. Well, how do you think that's been working out? <laughs> uh, you know, we're, and so... And, I mean, you have the, 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 the primary example of failed parenting in the Bible is Eli. That's one of the two primary ones. And, and Eli nags his sons. It's not that he says nothing. He just doesn't do anything. And so there have to be consequences. Um, Proverbs 26.3, a whip for the horse, a, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. I use this with adult kids as well. The point being, donkeys won't do what you want because they like you. They will do what you want because it hurts too much not to do it. That's the foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. How do you restrain the foolishness? Well, it's the rod of discipline. It's consequences. And so it, it can be taking stuff away. It can be chores. I actually had one couple. They had a son who was very rebellious, very disrespectful to his mother. And when he would speak evil to his mother, they went to Home Depot and bought like a 100 bricks and they would put them in one corner of the yard and said, okay, these bricks need to go from this corner of the yard to this corner of the yard. And basically, all the things in life you like are over until that's done. You can decide when you're going to do it, but there's no access to video games. There's no access to Internet, friends, you know, other than going to school. That's the next thing. This is the consequence. So, again, this is a wisdom issue. How old are they when you can still spank them? Um, I had a friend... The guy actually led me to faith. When he was 18 years old, he cussed at his mother, and his father came home and whipped him, and my friend respected him for that. I would say that's an unusual situation that probably won't work in most cases. I think as they're older, you have to find through... You can still cause pain by taking things away or extra work, but you have, you have to be creative, like the bricks thing. But if there are no consequences, the rules won't work. But then also you want to appeal to your child. It's a problem is the foolishness in his heart. From the heart, the proverb says, flow the springs of life. And, and what I find is, first of all, Caroline is the mom. It seemed like they would talk more freely with her. And she would actually we put the youngest son into Christian school, and they would drive back and forth. And sometimes like she'd stop and get him a Slurpee on the way home or something. And sometimes these little windows of opportunity happen where, they're not just totally shutting you down and you can toss a few things in. Um, and so you're, you're praying for that. There could be circumstances where it would be wise to have your child examined by a physician. I had a friend who's in the biblical counseling movement who had a young adult child who was not working successfully and a lot of things wrong in his life and I think my friend really assumed it was rebellion on the part of their child. Well, it turned out there was a part of the guy's brain that did not develop normally. It does not excuse sin, but there was a medical issue involved. I think that's relatively rare. I think most cases it's sin. 
But there could be medical issues. They don't cause sin, but they can be influences that we may need to understand. Um, and then just don't undermine your own efforts. I've already said parents need to be of one mind. And don't make empty threats. Uh, you're tempted to say, I'll do this. Uh, unless, you know, if, don't make a threat you're not going to be willing to follow through on or you're really undermining your authority. And then the positive side is to mount a love offensive. And, I mean, you even think the father of the prodigal son, as a son was away, he loved him. Psalm uh, 103 talks about as a father has compassion on his children. That's how the Lord cares for us. And so, and this is this is the harder part in the sense that, at least it was for me, that knowing I needed to keep my son away from drugs and pornography and wicked friends when he was 16 years old, I, I got that. And we invested a lot of effort in locking that stuff down. It was like, he was handcuffed to one of us almost, not literally, but figuratively for a very long period of time. But then it's really hard to show love to someone who's destroying your life. It's really hard to show love to someone who breaks your heart. And the hardest thing for me was it's hard to show love to someone who hurts my wife. She's so nice. She's so kind. And to see her so sad and so hurt, it gave me a sense I wanted revenge. And yet God loves us when we don't deserve it. God loves his enemies and shows grace to them, as it says in Matthew 5 and Luke 6, I believe. And and so the trick is to find ways you can so love to your child without compromising your standards. Meaning, he'd say, well, if you love me, give me a car, give me a phone, give me a credit card, and we'll be great. I'll love you back if you do that. I All those things would be instruments of your destruction. And so in our own case, with our 15, 16, 17-year-old, we tried to find ways we could show love without giving him the tools of his own destruction. And so one example is he got into music, and we bought musical instruments. We paid for music lessons. We started taking him to concerts that he wanted to go to. Thankfully, I mean, he was into bluegrass music and jazz and opera. But uh, I bought a lot of tickets. And I actually remember there was one case I took him to, I think it was a light opera concert and paid some money for the tickets. I was more probably jealous of my time. I could be studying. I could be you know, reading. I could be doing something. Here I am sitting in an auditorium in Balboa Park waiting for this thing to start. And then when we got there, we, of course, bought three seats together, but there were empty seats on our row. And so our son, like, he sits like nine seats away. And I've got like steam coming out of my ears. Like, here I am. I could be home reading. I could be doing so many other things. I didn't want to be here. I'm trying to show my love. And this is how he treats me. And I didn't articulate those words, but when you've been married a long time, your wife can tell what you're thinking. She just put her hand on my arm like, not now. <laughs> Calm down. So I took it. There was another case where actually the school he was going to was selling tickets to a golf tournament. And so I bought tickets, took him out of school, which he thought that was good, uh, to the golf tournament. And it's just interesting how things work out in God's providence, where we went to the first hole and Tiger Woods was about to tee off. This is many, you know, 20 years ago or something. And, and there was this throng of people around and police all over the place for security. And we just went out and you know, went out 200, 300 yards and stood in the woods off to the right by ourselves. And whack, guess where the ball went? 
he mishit it, and it was as close to me as that chair. And we were there alone, and my thought was, run! We shouldn't be here. And my son grabbed my arm and said, no, we're going to go right up next to that thing. And then, you know, Tiger makes his way up there, and he's got police around him, and you've got this throng of people coming. And the, we're, he's outside the rope, so people aren't allowed on the fairway, but he's you know, right here among the commoners. And so we're standing there, and he's as close as this. And, of course, we have to back off. He had a bouncer for a caddy and, you know, get out of my way. But my son, wow, you know, here's this celebrity we could reach and touch. We didn't dare. We'd have gone to jail. But, you know, that close. And, and so the Lord gave us some good experiences together, um, trying to find ways to show love without compromise and then having a heart of grace and forgiveness and not giving up. I think there's a lot of temptation just to give up. I actually... I feel like my parents, actually, as I got older. Uh, thankfully, God saved me when this happened, and nothing horrible happened. But it's like they just, you're on your own. And I see how that would be a temptation. Okay, last major topic on dealing with rebellious kids is that the Bible teaches there's such a thing as an incorrigible kid. And there's a passage in Deuteronomy 21. You're probably familiar with it. Um, under the law... I'm going to read it, and I, I think because all Scripture is God-breathed, this is not a bad part of the Bible. It's part of the Old Covenant, but I think there's wisdom in it for us today. Deuteronomy 21, beginning in verse 18. If any man is a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and his mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gateway of the hometown, They shall say to the elders of his city, The son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death, so you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. So we are not under the old covenant. And I think the point was is that bad influences will harm the covenant community and the purity of the community was so important that some people like that had to be removed. Today we do church discipline, not killing people, just putting them out. But they were a nation and they were the community. Um, and I think there are principles that remain, and that is that it is possible for a child to be incorrigible. Now, this isn't talking about a five-year-old. This is a glutton and a drunkard. But I think it's possible for a young adult or teenager to be so far out of control that they will not at all listen. And I've run into some. I felt like I was on the brink of this and never got there. God, by his grace, turned it around to a large degree in terms of relationship and submission. But I've counseled in cases where, in the case of a guy, 16-year-old, probably weighed 230 pounds, kind of built like this. He's got a mom who weighs 95 pounds, threatens her with a knife, won't go to school, shoplifting, smoking pot. And his parents are trying various measures, and, you know, he's a physical threat. Um, another principle, and so there's such a thing as an incorrigible child, and then children or even minors can be held responsible for their sinful choices. It doesn't say take the parents out and stone them for being bad parents. The parents are saying, we tried to correct him, and I'm sure it wasn't perfect, and he would not listen. So, He's held responsible. And uh, I think, you know, even in a legal system where they say, well, if you're 17 years old and you commit this horrible crime, it doesn't count. Well, if you're old enough to do those things, you're responsible. 
And then I think the principle does remain, says you shall, you know, the people will hear of it. Remove the evil from your midst and all will hear of it in fear. We should be concerned about the corrupting influence of an incorrigible child upon the community. And I would say the home and the church. The 17-year-old girl who's trying to get her 15-year-old sister to do drugs and sleep around is a corrupting influence in the family and may need to be removed somehow because she will not listen to her parents. The 15-year-old kid who's going to your youth group and he's sneaking in marijuana and trying to get other people to try it with him around the corner from the church um, may need to be removed, or the guy who's seducing girls. So, And then sometimes we have to be prepared to take drastic measures. Uh, words alone will not work. And this is, I mean, God reached that point with Israel. He kicked them out of the land. So how do you do that? Again, we don't execute people. If they profess to be Christians, and this is something our church had to do with a few families, as you had kids who professed faith when they were younger. We had a case, I remember, where a guy grew up in the church, and he's in college, and we learned that he was going on vacation during the summer with his girlfriend and staying in the same room. And a little leaven, leaven, you know, corrupts the whole lump. And we, we don't want our young people thinking that's an acceptable way to behave if you're not married. And so we approached him. He's now old enough, 19, 20 years old. And we ultimately removed him from membership through discipline because he would not repent of fornication. And so sometimes that, that that's one avenue. Of course, the purpose would be corrective to bring somebody to repentance. And that sometimes happens as well. Another aspect would be the civil authorities. Oftentimes when children get into trouble, their parents invest a great deal of money getting them away from the consequences. And so this person got caught selling drugs at school. I have a case of that, believe it or not, where the person I'm counseling, son got caught doing not just doing but selling drugs at school, in high school. Um, and you're afraid, oh, no, if he has to go to juvenile hall or if all these things happen to him. God has designed the, the punishment that human government brings upon evildoers is a common grace means of restraining sin. And if you want to harden a child in being incorrigible, you keep threatening and nothing ever happens. We actually had a case in our church where there was a kid who was 17 and he ran away from home doing all kinds of evil, just getting every kind of trouble you could imagine. Police found him and actually somehow brought him where he sat with one of the pastors, myself and his parents. And we were trying to work out how he could go home and how he's going to live under the rules. And the police told the, the policeman told the parents, if he causes you trouble, here's my card and you call me and I will take him in and da da da. Well, the 17 year old after the policeman left said to all of us, drop dead <laughs> and walked out where some friend was going to pick him up down the street from the church. And we called the policeman. He says, I was bluffing. There's nothing I can do. But what does that tell that kid? And so I know we hate the idea of our children going to court or getting into trouble, but sometimes that may be the better thing rather than having to learn a hard lesson later. Let the gov- If they've committed civil crimes, let them experience the consequences. And then sometimes you may need to put them out of the house. Uh, now, once they're adults, you can kick them out. They, can't, they don't have a light, right to live with you. If they're minors, you're responsible to provide shelter, clothing, food, but it doesn't need to be in your house. And I actually had, a, I've had three cases going on right now, which is an unusually large number at one time, where there are 
apparently incorrigible sons, drunkenness, alcohol, rebellion. And in two of the cases, the parents have put them into kind of an institutional setting where they deal with these situations. Um, and there are places like that. And I actually, there are Christian ministries who specialize in that. I, I'm, I admire that anybody would be willing to do that. Like I, I would sooner break rocks into pieces than do that kind of ministry. I admire that some of them are charismatic and some of them are psychological. I mean, it's hard to find one that's perfect, but part of the reason, even if it's charismatic or psychological, at least the child is out of your house not burning the place down, figuratively or literally. Some are better than others. Some are cheaper and more expensive than others, but I think that's an option. And I've had two cases where they've kind of the option is, um, you know, this, this is where your food and shelter is going to be coming from for the next three to six months or longer. And these places are pretty good at, they, they, you can't play them like you can play lots of parents. I had one case of a couple, it was the same people that had the bricks, and their son at home was just out of control. I mean, they would try to keep the computer from him, and he would like find ways to break locks and passwords and get into evil and trouble. And so they sent him off to one of these places, and he went to this ranch-type place with other rebellious kids, and he became like the star student. And he came to see me when he was released or on break or something. I said, well, why is it that you wouldn't obey your parents and you would obey these people? He said, well, there's this big fat guy called Big Al. And they said that Big Al was going to sit on me if I didn't do what they said. And there was a lesson in that for the parents. that <laughs> They weren't willing to sit on him um, in their particular case. Again, your hope will be they will repent. You know, but there's two goals in putting a child out. One is it's protection for those who remain. Um, like the, the 16-year-old kid, 250 pounds, threatening his mother, uh, a security guard came, actually handcuffed him, and took him in a vehicle to his new residence. Um, and if nothing else, his mother's life isn't in danger, and the other siblings aren't in danger. And you're hoping, you know, Psalm 119, 67 says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your ways. You know, when did the prodigal son come to his senses? When he ran out of money and when things were hard. And so your hope would be that uh, God would use that. And there are lovely examples. I mean, we love the story of the prodigal son, don't we? Those of us with unbelieving kids love the story. We yearn for that to happen. Uh, in the earliest days of our church, um, we had a man in our church, had an 18-year-old son. He was very rebellious. And he said, well, you told his son, you can't live here anymore. And that was really hard for my friend. And the son said, I don't care what you think. I've got lots of people who take care of me, places to go. And and the guy was, the son was gone about two weeks. And he's, can I come back home? <laughs> and he was converted. And ironically, the son, I mean, now the son's in his 50s, but so long ago. But the son actually spent his career working with wayward kids, of all things. And he married a godly girl in the church. And they've got their own kids. And But, I mean, the Lord does that. And those stories encourage us. I would love to be able to tell you mine if I had it. Um I can tell you some blessings that God has given us. Um, and the, one of them I mentioned earlier that I'll just reference again is that, like in marriage, we're told husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
And I counsel a lot of couples for whom marriage is really, really hard. God has called some people to stay in hard marriages. My marriage has been about the easiest marriage I could imagine. We still struggle and sin and all that, but I mean, I've, I mean, I feel like I'm getting far more than I'm getting. So this sacrificial love thing, I mean, now and then, you know, we'll have broccoli at dinner or something. Like, <laughs> you know, we'll go to the restaurant she wants or something. But I mean, there aren't that many times I've felt all that sacrificial. But loving, unbelieving sons who break our hearts has taught me more about God's love. It's how God loved me before I was saved, and actually I still do wrong, and he still loves me. And so showing a really gracious love and finding a way to express that love and to show that love without compromising my faith. And the topic after lunch, we'll talk about one of the places where that's really hard to do. But that's been good for me to learn what love really is and what God's love towards me really is. And the other is that while we've not seen our children regenerated and come to faith, God has worked relationally. And there have been times when I thought we might be estranged, when you know they were taking stands and we couldn't, again, that's after lunch some, but um, I mentioned earlier our youngest, who was the super affectionate one. And when he turned to rebellion, 15 or so, he went from loving, I mean, just said hateful things, and then... Yeah, we, we kind of gained control where it was kind of decent relationship. He went to college, got a degree. Um, you know, we, we kind of got along, but we, we would, after even we moved to North Carolina, we talked to him on the phone. He wanted to talk sometimes, and there were, there were some good things that happened. One is, I remember actually when he went to college, and he would call Caroline all the time when he was going between classes. And he would say, you remember that concert you guys took me to? I know that showed how hard you were trying when things were bad. Uh, several years after that event I described. But I see now, thank you for that. And so he became a bit warmer. But when he would talk over the next several years, at the end of the conversation, we said, we love you, Daniel. Hmm. And it was now about five years ago when he was sharing some news with us, and we said, we love you, Daniel. He says, I love you, Mom and Dad. It was the first time in 15 years he had said that to us. And now, for the last five years, he says it over and over and over again. And I want him to love the Lord. We've had more opportunities to share Christ with him recently than we ever have for various reasons. But um, God has called us to love people who are hard to love. We can't compromise our faith. I have an article for the next session, like, Son, I can't turn away from God to please you. So, And yet we pray that God would use the grace we show uh, for their good. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you know the situation of each person here. You know those who may be struggling with their own children. You know those who will, who don't know it yet. Help us to continue to trust you. Help us to show a godlike love even to those who disappoint us and hurt us. Give us wisdom in dealing with very difficult situations sometimes. And we pray, Lord, that as you have saved many wandering prodigals, that you would save our children who have not and grandchildren who have not yet turned to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.